on Thursday of this week, I had three incredibly encouraging conversations with different people from our faith family and hearing how Jesus is on the move in their life. Uh, One individual was sharing with me how Jesus has called them into the ministry and how the Lord is preparing them for the next work of what that is going to look like. I had a meeting with a a man who represents compassion and how the gospel is flourishing in different parts of Africa as compassion, a ministry that we as a church partner with. The gospel is getting into families and communities at this time. So I praise the Lord for that. But I also had a conversation with a man in our church who oversees a ministry called Do Lost Partners, David Johnson. In fact, you're going to get a chance to hear David preach next Sunday. And David was sharing with me about how Jesus is on the move in the nation of Pakistan. In Pakistan, they're seeing maybe 90 to 100 people baptized every month. It's just a great work. Jesus is doing a good thing. Praise the Lord for that. He's on the move. Here's what's interesting. Because of COVID, a lot of people in poor communities are not having access to food. And because of that, the government is not showing up and providing food for them. Many of these towns are exclusive in which Christians are not allowed to come. They're Muslim predominantly people and they will not welcome outsiders for any reason. Well, the government's not showing up with food and the Muslim leadership of that community has left. They're not providing food. In comes the church. We're seeing God, because of COVID, open doors into cities and towns who in previous years have had no way to have the gospel have access to them. Here's what's interesting. This past month, more than 3,400 people have come to faith in Christ and have been baptized in the nation of Pakistan. Jesus is on the move. We're not going to see this on our television newscast. You're not going to see it on your social media feed. But be encouraged, he is at work amongst the nations. And as we've been walking through the gospel of Mark as a faith family, we see Jesus on the move then, and we see Jesus on the move now. And we see it taking place as we wrap up Mark chapter 9. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. A few weeks ago, we were unpacking the first part of Mark chapter 9, where we see Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, where with Peter, James, and John, his, he takes on a temporary glorified body. He comes down from the mountain to find his nine disciples who have failed to cast a demon out of a little boy. Jesus then steps into the situation and not only casts the demon out of the little boy, but he draws the boy's father to faith in himself. We see Jesus then take his disciples to remind them for a second time of the coming death that awaits him in Jerusalem. Jesus is fully aware of why he came, and that's to ultimately go to the cross, and he is preparing his disciples for his upcoming death. He then teaches his disciples about what greatness in the kingdom looks like. It's drastically different than the rest of the world, but it looks like serving and putting others before yourself. And then we get into Mark chapter 9, beginning with verse 38. The scripture says this. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Don't stop him, said Jesus Because there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name who can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For whoever is not against us is for us. 
And whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. The unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt should lose its flavor, how can you season it? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with one another. As Jesus makes one last stop in Capernaum, his headquarters for ministry up north in Galilee, he makes one final plea to his disciples in a huddle there in that town. We see in the text that Jesus makes a promise, a warning, and a command. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to see first, number one, the promise that Jesus makes, and it's this, allegiance to Jesus plus service for Jesus equals eternal reward. As the disciples huddled around Jesus and he's reminding them of the gospel and teaching them about greatness in the kingdom, John the disciple brings up a situation in which they faced a man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name. So the disciples tried to stop him. Why? Because, verse 38, he wasn't following us. Us. You see, the disciples, they're already starting to form their little clique here. They've got their group, their holy huddle. They've got their club. Who does this guy think he is casting out demons in Jesus' name? He's not one of the 12. Beloved, you and I, we must be careful of watching our hearts where pride can come lurking even in the back door. You see someone whom God begins to use, you grow suspicious. You grow jealous over how God is working in someone else's life. You may even try to stop them. And Jesus is saying, listen, if they're with us, they're for us, don't stop them. Thinking that he would receive a congratulations from Jesus, John got the opposite. Jesus commands him, verse 39, don't stop him. You see, this guy is showing allegiance to me. This guy is with us, verse 40, for whoever's not against us is for us. If this guy's casting out demons in my name, you're seeing the work of God, the power in the name of Jesus. Don't stop him. He is with us. This man is showing allegiance. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 12 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. You see, when it comes to Jesus, there is no room for neutrality. You're either with him or you are against him. I want you to see secondly, though, where Jesus calls for service in his name. Even the smallest act, like giving someone a cup of water in Jesus' name, verse 41, it doesn't go unnoticed by the king. 
Beloved, God sees, God knows, and God will reward every good deed you do for his people. Big and small, God will reward your generosity and faithfulness. And Jesus says, verse 41, you will never lose your reward. But remember, we don't do it for the fame of our name. When you are doing good deeds as a follower of Jesus, you're not doing it for the sake of the name on the back of the jersey. You're not doing it so people will recognize you. We echo what David says in Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and your faithfulness. We as followers of Jesus, we don't seek the fame or the glory, but we seek to do it for the glory of King Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 4, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And so generosity comes from a heart that's been satisfied in Christ. We see the generosity that God's shown us in Jesus. And so we are generous towards others, but not so that we can receive the praise of man. We do it for the praise of King Jesus. And every good act you do, even a cup of water in Jesus' name, you will receive a reward that will never be taken away from you. And so as followers of Jesus, we get involved in the messiness of life and we open our homes to foster kids. We financially support families who are seeking adoption. When you care for the widow down the street by cutting grass and cleaning out her gutters, when you are going out of your way to care for that senior saint who has been forgotten by the world, when you model the gospel with the millions of acts of kindness as followers of Jesus, you will receive a reward that will never be taken from you. Jesus here is laying out for us that an eternal reward comes when there is allegiance to him and service for him. You see, earthly investments are temporary. Heavenly investments are permanent and eternal. Beloved, this is what we do as followers of Christ Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Again, we don't do good works to earn God's favor. We've already received God's favor when we believed the gospel. So it's out of the overflow of what God's done for us in Jesus that propels and compels us to go and do good deeds. And when you do, Jesus promises there is an eternal reward that is coming. But then we see here in the text, verse 42, Jesus pivots his teaching with his disciples. He moves from the promise of reward and blessing to a serious warning of coming judgment. I want you to see, secondly, the warning. Slay sin or die forever. Verse 42, Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. When Christy and I were in Capernaum, we came across a ruins in which we found one of these heavy millstones that Jesus is talking about. 
In fact, in this picture, you see what it looks like, and because of the pixels, it looks kind of like a weird donut. But in its size, it weighs about 1,000 to 2,000 pounds. It could only be moved by an animal, kind of like a donkey or a horse. And they would put wheat or grain in the trough. And as the animal would walk in circles, the, the millstone would grind it down so that it could be used for making bread or whatever else. This thing right here cannot be moved by pushing it. Trust me, I tried. Maybe next time I'll get in a three-point stance and see what we can do, okay? This thing is ginormous. Now imagine this thing is put on top of your shoulders and you are dropped into the sea. Jesus says that is better than the judgment that comes when you make one of his followers stumble. He says one of these Little ones, verse 42. It's a reference to believers. You see, Jesus is comparing a horrible death by drowning as better than coming judgment for those who cause those who believe in him to fall away. You see, there is a great and terrible day that is coming to those who harm God's people and cause them to fall away from the truth. This can be applied to false teachers. Someone claims to be speaking for God and they reveal something, they teach something that is not from God and someone believes that on the last day, they've walked away from Jesus and believe something that is not true. Danger. And Jesus says, for that person who leads my people away from me, those who walk away from me, your judgment is going to be worse than if you were drowned with a millstone on your shoulders. So, how can you and I protect ourselves from false teaching? Here's the key. Examine every word of what someone says with Scripture. Filter what someone teaches with the Bible. If someone is claiming to speak for God and it contradicts the Bible, it is not from God. You can have confidence in the scriptures, God's revealed word of what the truth is. And you and I must be continuously on guard from false teaching that creeps into the church. We see it being creeped in through our televisions. Be on guard. And Jesus says, for those who teach what is contrary, those who lead my children away, those who, call, who cause those little ones to fall away, it would be better if they were drowned in the sea with the millstone on their shoulders. But then Jesus shifts gears again with his disciples in verse 43, and he warns his disciples of coming hell for those who do not kill sin in their own hearts. He says in the text, it's better, verse 43, to cut off your hand. It's better, verse 45, to cut off your foot. It's better, verse 47, to gouge out your eye than to go to hell. Now, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration to drive home his point. He is not calling for self-mutilation here because sin begins in the hearts. 
You can amputate every part of your body and still sin because sin begins right here. It begins in the heart. But Jesus is saying it's better if you cut off all of your body parts than to experience the horror of hell. He is driving home the point that we must be serious about killing sin in our lives. You see, if, if we do not kill sin, sin will be killing us. That's what John Owen, 16th century pastor and theologian said. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You see, a Christ follower is not someone who never sins. When you put your faith in Christ, you still have not yet achieved perfection in this life. Now, it's coming. There's coming a day in which you and I, at the resurrection, we will experience perfection. But until that day, you and I are in a fight to put sin to death in our own hearts. And we do it by the grace of Jesus in which we wage war against the sin in our hearts. Grab hold of this. A true follower of Jesus has declared war on the sin that is within. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. Paul says in Romans 8 verse 13, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Question, what sin in your life needs to be crucified? What sin in your heart and life keeps creeping up that you need to kill? Beloved, slay it. Kill that sin in your heart. Jesus says, cut it off. Don't don't play with it. Sin's not something you play with. It's not something that you manage. It's not something that you try and control. It's not something that you excuse. Sin is something that you must be putting to death. Hear the seriousness in Jesus here. He's calling for those who are his disciples to live a life of holiness in which we, we put to death these evil desires in our hearts. And we do it through the power of God. For example, in Philippians 2 verse 12, Paul says this. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, so as followers of Jesus, we work out our salvation. Now this is key. We don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. Okay? The only work necessary for your salvation was accomplished by Jesus. His work through his perfect sinless life, his substitutionary death, and his victorious resurrection on the third day. That's enough. That is the work that you need for your salvation. But in light of the work that Jesus has done for you, securing your eternal life, it compels you to work out your salvation. You want to prove on the outside what Jesus has already done on the inside. But before you and I can take credit for all of the good works that we do as followers of Jesus, Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So your 
desire, the will, comes from God. And the ability, the work, comes from God. So you and I, we got to be careful here. When you and I are slaying sin in our life, when we are putting to death the deeds of the body, when we are pursuing holiness, when we are gouging out eyes and cutting off hands, we are showing ourselves as those who are working out their salvation. We are showing that we belong to Jesus. Question, what sin needs to be cut off in your life? What continually keeps coming up? Do you keep allowing your eyes to drift into areas in which you should not be looking? Are words continually coming out of your mouth that don't look like Jesus? Is there a posture or attitude of your heart that does not reflect the gospel? Beloved, don't play with it. Crucify it. I love how Ed Stetzer said it. He said, sin is not a pet to tame, but a beast to slay. Jesus is here giving a warning, saying this is what you must do. You've got to kill the sin that is within you. Playing with sin, tolerating sin in your life is like playing with fire. In our backyard, we have a fire pit, and in the fall, sometimes we'll go out there and we'll make s'mores as a family. And it's amazing. It gets dark out, a little bit of crisp, cool air, which we haven't experienced in a long time. And you've got the fire pit, and it's, it's crackling and popping. It's warm. It's inviting. One of my children, whenever he sees fire like that, he is enchanted. He looks at it, and he just gets closer and closer. He'll pick up his seat and get closer and closer, and I'll warn him, buddy, if you get any closer, it's going to get you. And by the time comes, he's right there on the edge of it, and there's a, there's a pop, and it jumps up. Oh, and he backs up. Okay. That warning I'm giving him is a picture of what Jesus is doing here in Mark 9. He's warning you, if you don't put sin to death, you're playing with fire. I put in your notes three marks, uh, three truths about hell that Jesus gives us right here in Mark chapter 9. There's many more that can be added, but for the sake of time, there are three. The first is this, hell is awful. We see in the text where Jesus says, it's better if a millstone is around your neck. It's better to cut off your hand. It's better to cut off your foot. It's better to cut off your eye. Three times right here in the text, Jesus talks about the reality of hell. In fact, did you know that in Scripture, Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven? Hell is a very real place, and it is awful. That word for hell in the Greek is Gehenna. It's translated over into the Hebrew with the word Hinnom. On the south side of Jerusalem, there is a valley. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. Back in the days of Jeremiah in the Old Testament, that was a place where Israel would go and commit pagan worship. 
Now, parents, I, I know that we got kids in the room, and I'm very cognizant, so I'm going to be very careful on what I'm about to say. Um, there's more we can unpack on this, but I want to be very um, careful. In the Valley of Hinnom, that is a place where the god of Molech would go, would be worshipped. Molech was a large idol, so big metal, kind of looked like a big, um, almost like a wolf. His hands would be extended out in front of him. He would be set on fire, and his hands would be red hot. And for an act of worship, Israel, turning away from the Lord, would take babies and place them on the hands of Molech, screaming. You can imagine the screams of moms as the babies are ripped out of their arms. The screams were so loud that drums would be played in the valley to try and drown out the noise. In Jesus' day, because of King Josiah doing away with that idolatry worship, he turned it into a garbage dump. And so in Jesus' day, it was a garbage dump. Fire was continually burning. And that's where trash would be taken to burn the carcasses of dead animals and even dead criminals were taken there to burn. And Jesus says, hell is like that. Hell is awful. And we live in a culture in which we don't want to hear that. We don't want to think about that. In fact, there's an understanding, an idea that everybody goes to heaven. And Jesus says, no. I want you to feel how sobering this is. Jesus is talking about the reality of hell, and it's awful. In fact, if the phrase, you can just go to hell, comes out of your mouth, you don't want that on your worst enemy. Let this text sober us. A place where fire never goes out, screaming, suffering, spiritual darkness. It's awful. And there is a way of escape. And his name is Jesus. Jesus is the one who took your judgment at the cross. Because of your sin and my sin, that is what we deserve. And God is just to send us there. He is right in his holiness and perfection to punish sin, and he must. But the beauty of the gospel is that God sent his son, Jesus, who stepped in so that hell is no longer held against us who are in Christ Jesus. Today, if you do not know Jesus, believe upon him. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Believe the gospel that Jesus went and died for you. He loves you so much that God gave his one and only son. And he went to the cross and died for you. And he was buried just as you will one day be buried. But he was raised on the third day. He is victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. And all who believe upon Jesus, so too will you be rescued. Hell is off the table for those who believe the gospel. Believe upon Jesus. The first thing we see here in the text is that not only is hell awful, but number two, hell is painful. 
Jesus says in verses 43 and 45, it's a place of unquenchable fire. Scripture uses descriptive language to describe what hell is like. It's a place of torment, of suffering, and misery. Thirdly, I want you to see in the text that hell is eternal. Jesus says in verse 48, their worm does not die. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 66 here, where it says the worm will never die and their fire will never go out. Jude 13 says it's a place that is reserved forever. You see, the punishment for rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ is perpetual and eternal hell. Our culture scoffs at this. Many will call us bigoted, closed-minded, and all kinds of other names for holding fast to this doctrine. But hold fast we must because this is what Jesus has gone on record as revealing as true and as real. Jesus is teaching with great clarity and sincerity the danger of the reality of hell. But you know, teaching on hell is actually loving. It's a very loving thing to warn someone who is in danger. Last month, Christy and I went hiking at the Palisades up in Aniana. It's a beautiful place to go hiking, and there's a, a, a cliff, a bluff, in which you can look out in the distance and just see for miles. It's beautiful. But about 10 yards in front of the edge of that bluff is a warning sign. And it warns of a drop-off that is ahead. And some in our culture would say, that's unloving. Who are you to tell me about a potential danger? You must be closed-minded. You must be a bigot. No, that is a loving signpost that is warning of danger. What Jesus is doing here in Mark chapter 9 is he is giving you a loving signpost. He is warning you of danger to come. You see, Jesus' warning of coming judgment in hell is a loving signpost of coming danger. When you tell your children, don't play in traffic, that is a loving signpost. When you tell your children, put on your seatbelt, that is a loving signpost. Jesus is warning of the awful reality of hell, and it is a loving signpost. And we as followers of Jesus must continue to speak what he speaks and hold fast to what he holds fast to. And the reality of hell is, is that it is coming for all who reject the gospel. And so if you you do not know Jesus today. Run from your sin and trust in Christ. Feel the weight of this. I say this as someone who for 18 years lived for himself on my way to hell. And I was right to receive it. But then grace snatched me up. I was dangling over the pit of hell by a, by a string. And then Jesus rescued me and he will rescue you. No matter what's in your past, no matter what is sin is happening in your heart, in your life right now, Jesus is powerful to save. He will rescue you on the last day. You see, it is a foolish decision to say, I'm going to live for sin and self now because eternity hangs in the balance with whether or not you trust in Christ or not. Today, believe the gospel. Trust in Jesus. So in the text we see a promise, we see a warning, 
And then thirdly, we see a command. And here's the command that Jesus gives. He says, offer your life as a sacrifice to the Lord. As Jesus has just described hell as unquenchable fire, he goes on to say, verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, God told Israel to salt their grain offerings. When they came for worship, there was to be salt that was added and it would make the offering complete. Well, here Jesus is using the same imagery that the disciples are to bring an offering to the Lord. But the offering is going to be salted with fire. So for unbelievers, verse 49, that salting with fire is what Jesus has just described as unquenchable fire in hell. But for the believer, for those who've given their lives to Christ, those who believe the gospel, we will one day have our lives tested by fire. Okay, Kenneth, what in the world are you talking about? When we look at scripture, for followers of Jesus, there are two judgments that are to come. One judgment is the great white throne. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 25, in which all of mankind, every human being who has ever lived will be there. Jesus on his throne. And Jesus describes a separation that's going to take place. Those who have rejected the gospel, the goats, will go to the left. Those who have believed the gospel, the sheep, will go to the right. The goats who have rejected Jesus will be sent into hell. Those who are sheep who believe the gospel, have trusted in Jesus, we will receive our eternal kingdom. Now, after that judgment, for believers, there's now a second judgment that's to come. And we see it in 2 Corinthians 5 and in other places. It's called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, this judgment is not a judgment towards sin. That was already taken care of by Jesus at the cross. You do not have to pay for your sin because Christ already took care of that. The judgment seat of Christ is a judgment for rewarding faithfulness. And this is what I see Jesus meaning in, second, in, um, in um, Mark chapter 9, verse 49, in which there is a second judgment in which we will be salted with fire. The fire of God's discerning judgment, it's going to reveal the validity of how we have lived our lives. So, Kenneth, let's be more specific. Here's what I think Jesus is talking about. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says this, For no one can lay any foundation other than what has been laid down. The found, that foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it. It's going to reveal it. Because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test, watch this, the quality of each person's work, each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So grab hold of this, okay? Followers of Jesus, if you're in Christ, this is what's coming for you. The great white throne, you're going to be put to the right. You get to enter into the kingdom. It's a second judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. This is a seat in which Jesus can be seated. He's going to reward faithfulness. And according to 1 Corinthians 3, what we've done with our lives 
how you've sought to build the kingdom, how you've given yourselves to building up the church and blessing God's people and investing in what really matters. 1 Corinthians 3, it's going to be tested by fire. And the validity of your work will be seen through the judgment of this fire from Christ. So for those who wasted their lives living for self and building their own kingdoms and investing in temporary things, they're going to have on the last day wood and hay and stubble, and when it goes through the fire, it's going to burn up. No reward. You still get to gain Christ. You still have heaven. That's what the text tells us, 1 Corinthians 3. But for those who've invested their lives, those who've sought to build the kingdom, those who have stored up treasures in heaven, that is the gold and the silver and the costly stones. And it goes through the fire and it comes out and there is reward. And so when Jesus says everyone will be salted with fire, the way I'm taking that text right there is a 1 Corinthians 3 approach in which as followers of Jesus, our labor of our lives is going to go through the fire of judgment and we will receive a reward if we are faithful. So how are we then to live? Second, uh, Romans 12 verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true worship. And so now the, the offering that we bring to the Lord is us. Lord, you have my life. You have my all. Jesus, you are everything to me. I'm now going to live my life, not for my glory, not for my fame, but for yours. I want to invest my life in the things that truly matter. I'm not storing up things here on earth that are going to be like wood, hay, and stubble on the last day. No, no. I'm going to give my life completely to the work of the gospel and making much of Jesus right where you have placed me. In the classroom, in the boardroom, in the homeroom, on the ball field. Anywhere you take me, God, I want to shine in Jesus and make much of Jesus, which drives us to our impact point, and it's this. Here's the task. Take to heart this reality. Not much longer until this day is past. Only what is done for Christ will last. That's the truth. Hold fast to it. Let's go make much of Jesus Christ. Thank you.